Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we kicked off with a little Christmas music there at the top, and I know some of you are probably thinking, what is, we just barely started December. You, Robert, I, you warned me that you were going to lean into the holidays this year, and you have been leaning. Well, I am, but for, for those of you who are, who are saying, well, this is too soon for a Christmas episode, uh, let me say that since this episode is about Christmas music, you should be thankful that I did not, we did not unleash this in mid-October because that is when some Christmas music begins to creep into various retail stores. Oh, yeah. They, they start pushing it earlier and earlier. Yeah. It's, it's creepy. So this is, I think this is a suitably early time to uh, tackle this topic, uh, but not so early that it annoys us, the creators of the show. Hopefully just annoys the listeners. Yeah. So uh, – <laughs> Uh, let's talk a little bit before we get into the you know more serious consideration of the topic, uh, just how we relate to holiday music. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my money, I, I do really enjoy singing a number of holiday carols around the holidays. Uh, I grew up singing in a, you know a number of these in, in church or in a uh, boys' chorus, and uh, I always play them in band as well or in piano recitals. So they strike a nostalgic chord, and they can just be fun to belt out, especially if you're belting out with other people. Uh, I especially always dug God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. That has a nice cadence to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, bonus points for being the rare Christmas song that mentions Satan. Very good. Uh, good King Wenceslas, very similar song that I also always really dug. And then when it comes to uh, you know more like recent, I guess, modern holiday music, I'm generally down for anything that Leon Redbone ever sang uh, that was holiday-themed. And, uh, and I'll tolerate some of the more electronic and new-agey Mannheim steamroller stuff, though some of that can be a little grating, in my opinion. Uh-huh. Um, at least it's electronic, right? right. And, uh, and I always dug uh, Jackson Brown's The Rebel Jesus. That's a nice, that's a nice Christmas song, I, I believe. It's a nice uh, retort to uh, American Christmas materialism. Wait, I just realized, you, you're, so you're a big fan of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen and Good King Wenceslas. Mm-hmm. Those are both like very staccato songs. They're very similar. In fact, I once did a piano recital where I had to play one of them, uh-huh. and I lost my way. And started playing the other one. Uh, it was a disaster, uh, as I guess you know a lot of uh, children's piano recitals uh, should be. Uh, but yeah, they're very similar. How about you, Joe? What are your uh, your likes and dislikes? Oh, uh, well, I definitely have an answer for what is the absolute worst Christmas song, and it is Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney, <laughs> which always sounds to me like – I cannot believe people play this on purpose. It sounds like the mantra of a person on the verge of a complete nervous breakdown. <laughs> and it's like the soundtrack of of uh, a psychotic episode. It, <laughs> it's it, horrible. Uh, you know, simply having wonderful Christmas time. And if it comes on in a store, I will leave the store. <laughs> I generally feel the same way about Jingle Bells. Yeah. Even though that's a standard, that's a classic. Uh, a lot of people probably feel nostalgic about it, but I find that it has just a, it's, it's 
relentless. You know, dun 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 dun, and and you just yeah, I, I just kind of recoil from it. It's like the Imperial March of Christmas. It's just <laughs> like Santa Claus shows up, like Darth Vader getting out of the ship, and it plays. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, now I do have to confess that I actually kind of like. Do they know it's Christmas? The nineteen eighty nine supergroup uh, performance. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's pretty dumb, but it's I dumb, can, but yeah. it's it. I don't know. It feels. It makes me feel a little warm inside if I hear it once. Every now and then. I will say one of the funniest Christmas songs, and by this, uh, yeah, by this measure, maybe the best ever, is one called Christmas Time by the Smashing Pumpkins, <laughs> which I don't think you'd heard before I no, played it for you. you played the other. it for me yesterday, and, uh, and I have to admit, I did, I, I did not hate it at all. It seemed perfectly fine. It's Billy Corgan passionately gushing about presents and toys. <laughs> also, while I was looking this song up, I found a November 2018 interview with USA Today in which Billy Corgan announces his intention to create an entire Smashing Pumpkins Christmas album. Oh, wow. I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but he said it would happen. And he also said it would not be hard rock. It would be like uh, – it would be something that you could gather around the Christmas tree with your family and listen to. <laughs> Uh, but in contemplating this episode, I, I was just considering the way that, at least in the United States, of course, Christmas music in particular strikes in these timed waves of attack in public places, mm. especially in stores, malls, other spaces that are trying to encourage commerce. And while it is normal for stores and public places to play music all year round, something does feel very special and different about the onslaught of Christmas music in public spaces. It feels potentially uh, – coercive and psychologically salient in ways that the other uses of just like normal pop music or whatever don't. Right. And it's and on one hand, it is kind of a cliche to be irritated by excessive holiday music. Mm -hmm. And perhaps we don't think about it too deeply because we just we we can all relate, I think, on some level to this. But uh, this episode is going to dig a little deeper and discuss why this might be, why uh, holiday music can irritate us so. And in doing so, you know, we'll look to both the, the pros, the strengths of holiday music, like why we in many cases love holiday music, but then also the reverse of that, the, you know, the, the dark uh, submerged part of that iceberg, uh, uh, why the, the Christmas music can drive us mad. All the noise, noise. Is noise. What is it the Grinch says about Christmas carols? Oh, well, he says a lot. There's a whole section where he complains, yeah, about yeah. just the, the, the noise of, uh, of the Who's and the Whoville celebrating uh, the holiday. And certainly that's the thing, right? Like the more you feel irritated by Christmas music, holiday music, you feel like you're being driven to Grinchdom. You're, you're, mm-hmm. being, you're, you're turning into a Scrooge right, uh, right there in the moment. And that's, that's not a pleasant feeling. Nobody wants to be Scrooge uh, or you know, at least Scrooge as he's depicted for the vast majority of the, the story. Likewise with the Grinch. Nobody wants to be that individual. But sometimes you can feel driven towards the, the edge of it. You know, one thing that I think is interesting is the very fact, and this is not at all unique to, you know, modern Christmas music, uh, the idea that there are types of music, genres associated with particular feasts or holidays. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's part of a broader trend where – 
where within each culture, certain holidays almost become like a culture within the culture. They're like another country that you can go to that has its own customs, has its own foods, has its own music, has its own uh, language, has its own like media and movies and all that kind of thing. Uh, well, this brings me back to our past episodes on the winter people talking about yeah. to what degree in general, but then also in uh, the traditions of certain uh, Pacific Northwest uh, native peoples, mm -hmm. to what extent we become different people during the time of winter, during the time of the feast, etc. Right. Particularly, I believe it's among like the Kwakwakiwuk people. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, they had like, you know, elaborate rituals about these alterations to their identities and their society uh, as as the winter months would come on. Uh, but in a way, I think part of the, the case we were making is that there, there are echoes of that kind of thing in, in all kinds of cultures mm -hmm. and even in you know mass consumer culture in the United States or something that you sort of enter into a different country when the when the winter months come on it also seems to me that a, it's not a coincidence that our most important feast days are in the dark of winter yeah, absolutely that the changes in the weather itself like shape uh, like sort of drive us toward the, the the family gathering feasting kind of behaviors and all that and indeed it's those feasts, we break into song sometimes. Uh, yeah, or sometimes put on songs or, you know, if you really actually, I, I don't know why I didn't think of this earlier, for an excellent psychological experiment, uh, just in the middle of summer sometime, or like maybe May or June, go to a place that has a jukebox that you can program songs in and get Christmas music going <laughs> and see how people react. An informal experiment. Oh, people don't take kindly to it at all. <laughs> They're like, we are not those people right now. How dare you? Right. All right. So let's begin at, at, with, a, with the broader picture of music. Let's, let's state the obvious, and that is that music is awesome. Music is an integral part of the human experience. Every culture has its music. Every majority, every minority, every institution, every subgroup, every tribe, every holiday – Obviously, uh, you know, individual in group A may not care for the music in group B, but there are no hard, fast rules here either, especially today where we're in this, this time really of peak music exposure where between, you know, whatever your favorite music streaming website is, between YouTube uh, and, and so forth, we have exposure to so many different cultural traditions of music, so many different genres and subgenres. Uh, there's just absolutely so much of it. Uh, and, and so our tastes are going to vary. And I think if you look to your own musical tastes, you like, 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 like us, you'll find that you know, probably there's some seemingly contradictory or at least less obvious connections, you know, like uh, different genres that maybe don't seem like they should sit on the same shelf with each other. And yet here they are uh, bouncing around your head. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I very much identify with this. I I'm not a one-genre guy. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, music is also powerful. Uh, re really, music is in many ways a drug. It is, a, it is something that many of us will use to regulate our, uh, our moods, our energy levels. Uh, it, it changes the expression of who we are. I would say it's also a performance drug for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, we we use it to self-regulate mood purely for uh, enjoyment and emotional stability, but we also use it to motivate certain behaviors. I mean, I think music is incredibly powerful for self-conditioning. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to uh, 
basically perform operant conditioning on yourself. Uh, there are certain types of music that you should practice putting on when you're being productive and then you listen to that same music again when you're trying to be productive other times. I think it's incredibly effective. Absolutely. And uh, and certainly music can at times feel to feel like it, it overpowers us. I often come back to the Peter Gabriel song, The Rhythm of the Heat, mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite Gabriel tracks in general, in English or German. German version's great, too. Um, <laughs> but the lyrics go, the rhythm is below me, the rhythm of the heat, the rhythm is around me, the rhythm, rhythm has control, the rhythm is inside me, the rhythm has my soul. And, it's uh, like the devil. <laughs> it is, yeah. It, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Gabriel's lyrics here allude to uh, something Carl Jung said about trauma. Um, tribal music uh, that he was exposed to, uh, feeling as if it were possessing him and, and, and making him anxious uh, because he felt like he was losing control to it. I mean, I think it's no coincidence that in certain social settings, we often like to listen to loud music, especially rhythm-heavy music, mm -hmm. uh, in the same kind of ways that people might consume alcohol at big parties and then listen to rhythm-heavy music at big parties. It seems inhibition-reducing sort of overcomes natural inhibitory behaviors. And I think actually it's, n it's not a coincidence that the same types of things are used in a coercive way, say, in interrogation settings where loud, repetitive music is used to break the will of people who are undergoing interrogation. Yeah, in the same way one might attempt to use a drug to break the will of an individual. Um, it's kind of like a, you know, a, a light and a, a dark magic uh, to music. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and we'll get into a little of that. But we also touched on here the communal aspect of music. Uh, there is something about music that uh, is inherently communal. Uh, I mean, it, there's the private experience of music, certainly, but music has, has long factored into our various rites and rituals and observances. Uh, and you see, that, you see that just about everywhere, yeah. uh, secularly as well. You look at uh, the various, uh, you know, patriotic tunes and national <laughs> anthems that are employed. Uh, but more than that, just like dancing is social behavior. You yeah. Know, uh, that, that music, uh, by getting everybody in rhythm on the same beat, there's a natural social unifying effect to that. Yeah, yeah. You're syncing up neurologically, really. Now, emotionally, music can push us in a variety of directions. Love, hate, fear, melancholy, pride, nostalgia, community, individualism, relaxation, animation, and indeed, music has been shown to have a, a physiological effect on us. It can mentally and physically stimulate us. And so the power of music has intrigued us for ages. And there have been tons, tons of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of theories have been put forth, so many studies. Uh, Charles Darwin uh, was famously stumped by music's power, uh, writing the following in The Descent of Man. Quote, with man, song is generally admitted to be the basis or origin of instrumental music, as neither the enjoyment or capacity of producing musical notes are faculties of the least direct use to man in reference to his ordinary habits of life. They must be ranked among the most mysterious with which he is endowed. I think Darwin, uh, he might have been uh, calling the shots too early there, yeah. saying that that we don't I think he's essentially saying, well, music is something that has no obvious survival benefit. Like, it, you know, it doesn't fit into the things you need to do to survive and reproduce. And that's why it's such, a, such an enigma why we do it. 
I, I'm not sure that it, we can rule out that it has like survival and reproduction benefits. I think it very likely does. Yeah, I'm, um, I, I read a little more from this this uh, this section of the Descent of Man, and he does get into talking about birds and so forth. So mm-hmm. it's perhaps maybe a little more of a a contemplation than uh, than it might appear with just this brief excerpt. But uh, but but still, uh, I, I appreciate him getting to the mystery of it. But I do also agree that music is such a part of the human experience that uh, I, I think it is, we can't quite dismiss its role in, uh, in our survival. Yeah. Uh, actually, you know what? I probably wasn't – yeah, I was probably not being fair to Darwin because I didn't see the rest of the quote. Because in fact, it is quite common in Darwin's writings for him to announce that something is mysterious and then go on to <laughs> offer explanations for it. So uh, a great deal of research has looked at uh, the impact of music. And uh, one paper I was looking at in particular is a 2013 paper titled The Psychological Functions of Music Listening by uh, Schaefer et al. in Frontiers in Psychology. And uh, I found this paper to, to be really nice. Uh, sums up a lot of findings uh, uh, concerning the way we use music. Uh, quote, surveying the literature from the past 50 years, we identified more than 500 purported functions for music. From this list, we assembled a somewhat Catholic list of 129 non-redundant musical functions. We then tested the verisimilitude of these uh, posited functions by collecting survey responses from a comparatively large sample. PCA revealed just three distinct dimensions. People listen to music to achieve self-awareness, social relatedness, and arousal and mood regulation. We propose calling these the big three of music listening. Okay, so if I'm understanding that right, it's to reflect on yourself, to fit in with others, or to achieve a particular mental or emotional state. Uh, I think that seems about right, and and that fits in very well with the ways that I've primarily used music in my life. You uh, like to reflect on yourself, think about the way people listen to sad songs after a breakup or something. It's almost like the listening is engaging with some kind of information nexus that gives you ways of thinking about your own situation. Yeah. Uh, And then, of course, to fit in with others, as we've already talked about, music and dancing being highly social activities that form connections between people, get you all in the same rhythm, which is a a socially – encourages social bonding. And then, of course, finally, to regulate mood or achieve certain mental states. Uh, And that can be everything from just wanting to feel good and listening to music that makes you feel good to trying to encourage, uh, like I was saying earlier, encourage productivity through mm-hmm. uh, operant conditioning on yourself through productivity music. Yeah, and, and I think all of the, all three of these two are worth keeping in mind when it comes to both seasonal celebration music and communal religious music, which of course a lot of holiday music is. Hmm. So how would those three things uh, fit with like seasonal holiday music? Well, let's see. So... Um, Self-awareness, uh, you know, again, when, when, when the environment changes, uh, the self may change a little bit. We're, we're reflecting on who we are mm-hmm. uh, during this time of, uh, you know, in, in theory, fewer resources and less sunlight, etc. Uh, perhaps engaging in exercise of, uh, exercises of gratitude as well to come back to uh, what we discussed uh, previously. Sure. Uh, also, so, you know, some – a number of holiday songs do touch on the idea of – giving gifts to those who are less fortunate. Mm-hmm. Not every song, certainly, but but you see that employed. Um, 
The Jackson good, Bro- good King Wenceslas does, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. sure does. Uh, uh, the Jackson Brown song, The Rebel Jesus, uh, certainly uh, has that vibe to it. Like this kind of like taking down materialism at Christmas a, a notch and saying like this is this is what the season is supposed to be about whether you do this or not. It is about a Bolshevik revolution. <laughs> Social relatedness comes back to the community of Christmas, this country of Christmas, like you said earlier. Mm -hmm. And then arousal and mood regulation, uh, we see that employed as well, sometimes nefariously, as we'll get into later on. Sure. Now, in this uh, meta paper that I was talking about, they point to a number of theories as well. Uh, And there are a lot of theories about music and what it is and what it does. And, you know, ultimately, it's one of those situations where you can probably choose several of them and feel pretty safe Uh uh, about uh, adhering to them. And one of the theories they cover is that of uh, Ellen Disignaki from uh, 2009. And um, Disignaki argues that humans use music to cope with anxiety concerning mortality. They point, uh, they point out that uh, music-induced chills produced reduced activity in brain structures associated with anxiety. And they, uh, they also point to, to the idea discussed by several scholars that music plays a key role in transcendence, taking us out of ourselves and bringing us into a flow state. Uh, and certainly hmm. we see we're talking about work music, you know, what, what sort of music do you put on to work and to get into a flow state. But I think also that's comparable to holiday music as well, you know, like transcending your personal identity and getting in the headspace of – the season, whatever that particularly means to you in a secular or religious standpoint. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So first of all, thinking about this idea of uh, Dasanayaki's uh, that that music may be primarily for the purpose of avoiding thoughts about mortality, it would seem that that is sort of is a particular instance that would fit into the broader umbrella of terror management yes, theory, right? Absolutely. Essentially, the, the short version, I'm probably uh, – not doing it quite justice this way, but the short version is that human culture is a result of attempts to avoid thinking about death. Yes. And that humans have culture because we are uniquely aware of the fact that we one day will die. And in order to not think about the fact that we one day will die, we come up with all of these elaborate things like art and religion and stuff like that, all of which exist to in one way or another mitigate the knowledge of our own mortality. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very thought-provoking uh, theory. Uh, I believe there's an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind where uh, Julie and I discussed it a bit. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those topics we could easily revisit because it, it's it, – again, it's not gospel. But it is uh, – Sure. It's just a, a proposed explanation. Right. Yeah. But it's one that, you know, when you start applying it to things in your life and in the world, um, it, it, it seems to hold weight. Well, I mean when you generalize it more and make it not just about mortality but anxiety. Yes. Uh, that uh, that our – a lot of the positive activities in which we engage – do seem to have uh, almost across the board a power to quell anxiety, especially sort of uh, static ruminant anxiety of the kind that you get when you, you know, just sit there and let your default mode network take over Mm -hmm. and you start to have negative cyclical thoughts about yourself and your future and the, you know. (laughs) Wow. And and so, and for that reason, I mean, it's everything from uh, psychedelic drugs to meditation to music to religious experiences to engagement with art, uh, all all this stuff seems to serve 
the function, what it all has in common is that it kind of quells act, that sort of activity and gets you gets your mind occupied with other things. Yeah. And of course, it's interesting to compare all of this to Western holiday traditions, which, uh, you know, many commentators have pointed out, you know, are, are they're about the coming death of the world. They are about the world growing cold, the crops dying, the plants dying, and us having to navigate this perilous uh, season into the hope of an eventual spring. Yes, and it's that spring. It's like I think you're exactly right about that. It's that springtime association that's so important in like the uh, the hypothesized proto religions of the fertility cycles. Mm-hmm. Right? It's that that it's all about reminding you that hey, winter necessarily leads to spring. Uh, the withering of the world necessarily leads to blooming again, and that death necessarily leads to the life everlasting. Absolutely. All right, on that note, we're going to take our first break. But when we come back, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the holiday brain. All right, we're back. Uh, so I, I wanted to touch on a, a particular Danish study that came out in the uh, British Medical Journal back in 2015 that uh, tried to identify the, quote, Christmas network in the brain with uh, <laughs> fMRI. Now, I do want to stress that this was a very lighthearted study with a very small sample group of 20 test subjects divided into a Christmas group and a non-Christmas group. Okay, so you wouldn't read too much into it, right? Yeah, I, yeah don't read too much into it. But, uh, but, but here's what they found uh, when, they, uh, when they exposed individuals to Christmas stimuli. And I, I think we can, we can take something away from, from some of these. Uh, they said there were five areas where the Christmas group responded to Christmas images. So we're talking about images, not – we're talking about visual stimuli, not auditory stimuli here. Okay. Uh, but they yeah, responded with a higher activation than the non-Christmas group. This would be the left primary motor and premotor cortex, the right inferior and superior parietal lobule, and uh, the bilateral primary somatosensory cortex. So these areas have been associated with spirituality, with somatic senses, with the recognition of facial emotion. And so they say, for example, the left and right parietal lobules have been linked to self-transcendence, the personal predisposition to spirituality. And, and this is key. The frontal premotor cortex is important for experiencing emotions shared with others by mirroring or copying their body states. Hmm. And, I, and I think that that is worth thinking about. We do have to think about of a holiday as being a social custom, a communal custom, uh, which I realize can be easy to miss given how materialistic and media-driven the holidays have become and how a lot of those experiences are not communal. I just had a thought that didn't occur to me before. I wish I'd thought of this before the episode. I wonder if there are any examples where a, a – I don't know where this would be, but I'm just imagining maybe there was some Soviet state that tried this or something, uh, like to do away with holidays completely. Like could you have a, a culture or society without any seasonal celebrations or holidays and how would that change the people who went through it? You're talking about a war on Christmas? <laughs> um, well, I mean certainly – I mean, yeah, it's true. They, they've almost won. Nobody celebrates Christmas anymore. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the Certainly, we can look to examples of the suppression of religious practices uh, in, in various cultures. But I wonder if whenever that's done, it's replaced with other kinds of things that could serve for seasonal social bonding. If other holidays take the take their place or can you just get rid of holidays? Huh, that, this might be interesting to come back to in an episode. Do, we could do an episode on the war on Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, by the way, I mean – 
I, I think it's clear we're joking, but that idea is the most BS thing in the entire <laughs> world. I, I cannot believe people still talk about this. Well, um, to, to come back to the communal aspects, though, I, of, of, of Christmas stimuli, holiday stimuli, and holiday music, I, I, th- I, think, I think it does make sense, especially when I think to when holiday music is actually pleasing to me. So it's pleasing to me during, say, a family setting and one in which I have some degree of control over the music, uh, a church or caroling setting in which there is a communal and or faith-based experience to be had with the music, and, of course, personal music listening time in which I say I, I just suddenly get a wild hair to play that Jackson Brown song to, you know, sort of uh, as a critique of what's going on around me. Uh-huh. Or you just queue up a playlist with like a hundred sequential instances of Christmas time by the Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> yeah, maybe that. But, but when does it not please me? When it is forced on me, especially in a retail setting, a public transportation setting, advertising, or some other environment that is not communal, celebratory, or transcendent. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I mean, just to acknowledge, we, we mentioned him earlier, but to acknowledge again the idea of like CIA interrogation techniques, mm-hmm. or not just CIA, I mean, general uh, coercive interrogation techniques and, and, and the, the attempt to sort of torture and break detainees by subjecting them to loud, repetitive music. Uh, I don't want to go overboard and claim that like in-store Christmas music constitutes torture. I mean, obviously, <laughs> these are incredibly different things. Uh, they're extremely important differences, but it is worth exploring for a moment how music has been used in psychologically coercive ways. One of the ways I, I've read about music being psychologically coercive is that when the United States government has subjected detainees under interrogation to loud music day and night mm-hmm. uh, in order to sort of break them down and get them to give in to interrogation, I, I think one thing that's often emphasized is playing music that is culturally unfamiliar mm. to the detainees. So like playing especially genres that they would not have heard much of before. Right. I was reading a piece in Vox about music as torture that pointed this out that like um, – they don't tend to play at the detainees like American pop music, which filters out more to uh, mm-hmm. to the uh, home cultures that the, the detainees come from. They're more likely to play unfamiliar American genres like metal and country and rap that these mm-hmm. people have been less likely to encounter before. And it's that uh, – the combination of like the loud, repetitive uh, subjection to the sounds and their total cultural unfamiliarity that seems to make them especially potent in breaking down the will. Right. But when it comes to holiday music, no, certainly, and this is something that does come up in critiques of the use of holiday music in retail settings, there are individuals who, of course, do not or no, you know, for whom th- these are foreign songs, for whom these are songs that are not a part of their, uh, their traditional culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for a lot of people, certainly for what is probably the core audience, the target audience, you're targeting sort of like the basic uh, American holiday shopper uh, who would – presumably be familiar with jingle bells and uh, and so forth and have some sort of nostalgic reaction to it. Yeah, I think you're right about that. But I think there's another element that's like whether or not these songs are culturally familiar to you, 
they music has an almost unique power to uh, to be psychologically invasive in ways that you don't really have control over. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess you could literally plug your ears with wax or something, but like generally, if music is playing, it's getting in and it's working on your brain, and it's not like say a a visual advertisement that you can look away from. Right. When music is playing in your physical space, it has a sensory pervasiveness and unavoidable and you can't prevent it from working on you. Yeah, the rhythm has my soul. <laughs> so as, as we've been touching on here, like, there's an obvious reason that stores uh, play holiday music. Mm-hmm. And the reason, of course, is that the, the same reason that a retail environment does anything. You know, the, the reason they employ any kind of sensory change, and that is to encourage more sales. Right. And studies have shown that holiday music can encourage a more festive mood in shoppers. And, of course, a big part of our modern holiday model is the purchase, giving, and receipt of gifts. You know, this is the the materialistic model of of the holidays. And we all know this. Storefront Santas and holiday window displays do produce results, and that is why stores continue to utilize them. However, as pointed out in the uh, Robert Clara article for Adweek, uh, how retailers can keep Christmas music from driving shoppers crazy, <laughs> more and more savvy stores have uh, had to wake up to the fact that there's, there's, there's no one path on all of this. You, you have to know your product. You have to know your customers, and then you have to tweak your approach. So the music may bring some people in, but it's going to turn other people off, and you have to um, – you have to pivot uh, based on that. Mm-hmm. So the article points to a, a pair of polls from the time period that showed that holiday music was only hotly anticipated by 31% of Americans polled with 34% disliking it. <laughs> Another poll reported that 23% of the people polled dreaded holiday music, while 36% would leave a store sooner if it was present. Well, this is what they say. Now, can we trust people's reporting of their feelings on polls to accurately be be reflected in their behavior. Well, no, you know, with, with polls, you, know, you have to take them with a certain grain of, of, uh, you know, of salt. Of course, as always. But uh, Clara writes that, that experts have chimed in and advised care in choosing a holiday playlist. And they have, they have some key suggestions. First of all, no annoying novelty songs like uh, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. That <laughs> okay. one is pointed out specifically uh, as something to be avoided. I remember in my younger years in Tennessee, there was a certain classic rock radio station mm-hmm. uh, that I listened to as a boy, and they got a bug one year where they just really got into this song called Christmas Balls. That I was like, It's like a, I, I don't know who sings it. It's a novelty comedy song. It goes Christmas Balls, Christmas Balls, I've Got Great Big Christmas Balls. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think it's about, uh, it, it is... I mean, you get the joke. Yes. I don't know why I was trying to tell you what it was. No, I think it's about like ornaments. Yes. But, yeah. yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so they're, they're saying don't do that. Don't play Christmas balls. Don't play Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. What, what about uh, like I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas? Does that fit in with this? Um, they don't specifically mention that song, but certainly we've discussed before how music music that is sung by children, musical recordings sung by children, are exactly the sort of recordings that can uh, hit a, 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 a negative chord with, with listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, I think things where chipmunks are singing are probably <laughs> worth avoiding. 
<laughs> but uh, but then on top of this, so well, yeah, one thing is like try to steer away from songs that are inherently annoying, but also don't do a 100% holiday mix. Just because it is December or even November, like don't do 100% holiday music. Make sure that there are some non-holiday songs in the mix. And then also switch it up to mesh with different demos uh, that are coming into the store at different times of the day. Like maybe your your clientele at 10 a.m. in a grocery store might be rather different than the, say, the 5 p.m. crowd. And therefore, it might pay off to take that into account when choosing your music. I think that's a very good point. One thing I would say is that it's probably got to be difficult to study Christmas music overall Mm -hmm. uh, just because – Christmas music accounts for such a different range of things. I mean, all that's required for it to be Christmas music is that it makes thematic references to Christmas in, like, the lyrics or something, or even that it's an instrumental version of a known Christmas song. Right. And But, like, there, there's just hugely different stuff that stores could play. They could play traditional Christmas carols sung by a choir, or they could play uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Christmas Time <laughs> Has Come. They could play one of those Amy Grant Christmas albums, or, you know, it's like, why Wildly different sonic profiles in this music, and I would expect, of course, that that within that cohort of Christmas music, you would get some extremely different effects just based on the oral qualities of the music. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, there's so much to choose from. Um, you know, for, for instance, at times when I want to actually put on a Christmas playlist, mm-hmm. I'll inevitably go to either um, Doctor Rubber Funk's uh, uh-huh. Funky Christmas Mixes. He's a, an English DJ that, that puts out some fabulous funk mixes. Or uh, Soma FM, my my favorite internet radio station, has a number of different Christmas channels. Some of which play a lot of like quirky, even novelty songs, and you'll listen to you'll listen to uh, that for a bit, and you know, they'll play stuff you've never heard before. Mm-hmm. So there, there is, yeah, I think it is important to note there there is a lot of Christmas music out there. It doesn't have to just be that one Bing Crosby song, right? Uh, but anyway, I just wanted to point out that I'm sure that that makes it difficult to get consistent results on studies about the effects of Christmas oh, yes. music. Uh, two other pointers that the, they made in this article: don't turn it up too loud. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, And then don't play any particular song too much, even if it is a huge pop hit or a standard. Um, And and again, don't play 100% holiday music. Uh, Whatever the evidence to support this or not in terms of encouraging consumer behavior, I would say as a a moral imperative, you should follow this advice. Do not play Christmas music 24-7. Absolutely. Okay, we're going to take one quick ad break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Now, at this point, uh, I, I want to get to something that made the rounds last holiday season and is making the rounds yet again this year in 2019. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is clinical psychologist Linda Blair spoke about this very topic with Sky News in 2018 and then was subsequently you know, quoted uh, in, in various articles touching on this. Uh, and, and she said that especially for folks who have to work amid holiday music, you know, individuals working in a retail setting during the holidays, for example, uh, for them, this exposure can become so unpleasant that they have to exert an increasing amount of mental energy to block it all out. Basically, the idea here is it induces cognitive fatigue. Cheery tunes especially can drain workers and shoppers as well. 
I would say there might be something to this. Again, not to draw tr- too strong a comparison to actual torture techniques because, mm-hmm. again, extremely different things going on here. But to look at a at least mild thread of continuity, another thing that is often done to detainees being exposed to this kind of like sonic torture is excessively cheery music such as the Barney song, the oh, yeah. I Love You, You Love Me song, and the like uh, commercial jingles that are extremely cheery like the Meow Meow theme song uh-huh. uh, and I think it's it's sort of hypothesized that this also has some kind of will breaking power that it like it's so it, it ultimately becomes increasingly uh, cognitively demanding to resist the power of humiliation that comes on with yeah. listening to really cheery music over and over does that make sense oh yeah yeah absolutely uh, again very different settings torture and uh, and, re- and retail setting but still uh, I think they both both examples illustrate uh, the power of music now an- another piece that I ran across uh, Melody Wilding writing for ink.com uh, an article titled Neuroscience says holiday music is mentally draining she points out that there's a that there's a U-shaped relationship between how often we hear a song and how much we like it uh, what's known as the mere exposure effect yeah I was reading about the mere exposure effect and this is interesting uh, the, the core finding of the mere exposure effect is that Humans have a tendency to like a stimulus more after they've been initially exposed to it and then continue liking it more the more they're exposed to it as familiarity increases. And this does, of course, apply to songs, but it also applies to all kinds of other stimuli, visual, auditory, conceptual, linguistic. Uh, This effect has been studied for many decades. There was one meta-review I was looking at by Robert F. Bornstein from 1989 called Exposure and Affect Overview and Meta-Analysis of Research in Psychological Bulletin. And this uh, surveyed a couple of decades of published research and found that the effect was very robust for many different kinds of stimuli. And it looks like the mere exposure effect is most pronounced on like brief initial exposure to things. And then our our liking for things continues to increase as we're exposed to them more and more, but with a limit, depending on the stimulus, of course. Uh, on average, maybe somewhere around after 10 to 20 exposures, the effect loses power. So our, our liking of the thing plateaus and does not continue to increase. And then with some stimuli, as you continue to be exposed to them more and more after this period, your liking of them might sharply drop off. You actually like them less. And I think this is the U-shaped curve that the author there is referring to. Mm, okay. So that means there there is always hope that whatever is a fad and is annoying will go away. It will follow this curve into oblivion. Well, right. I mean, if something is still a fad and other people are still enjoying it, but you've already mm-hmm. dubbed it annoying, you've probably just gone over the U-curve faster than other people oh, and have. Everybody else or is... maybe you had initially less tolerance for whatever it was <laughs> anyway. I mean, sorry, what were you saying? Oh, well, I'm, I'm specifically talking about the, the meme where the cat and the woman yell at each other. I don't know that meme. Oh, well, get ready to ride the U on that one, I guess. <laughs> now, an interesting question is why do we like things more once we've already been exposed to them? And the primary explanation I've come across is processing fluency, the amount of energy required to mentally process a stimulus – 
Like, the brain is lazy and it wants to avoid work whenever possible. So when a stimulus is familiar rather than new and unfamiliar, the brain has to do less physical work in order to perceive, understand, categorize, and react to the stimulus. And uh, the processing demand is reduced and made more fluent. And this is where processing fluency comes from. This easing of the mental burden feels good and emotionally manifests to us as increased comfort and pleasure with the stimulus. Mm. So I would kind of say that familiarity feels better than unfamiliarity with a picture or a song or something. The same way that playing a sport or a musical instrument that you've already practiced and gotten good at feels better than playing a sport or a musical instrument or something that you've not yet acquired any skill fluency with. And with music especially, this is this is why we, we hear that, that, that new song that we, we instantly dig and it's why we have to listen to it like five times in a row. Yes. And, yeah. and why later on we'll come back to it and we'll, we'll remark just how, how much more we're finding in the, like the musical architecture of the thing. Totally. Uh, in, in fact, though, I just wanted to point out, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, some familiarity might be lighting up in your brain because processing fluency as a concept was also a major factor in explaining the illusory truth effect. Ah. Uh, remember, this was the pair of episodes we did about the body of research showing that merely having been exposed to a claim makes you more likely to believe the claim is true, even if you should know better. Uh, so in that case, familiarity with the statement, fact, or claim makes it easier for the brain to process the same statement or claim when you hear it again later on. And the macro effect of this is, uh, for truth statements is that we're more likely to rate them as true or credible if we've heard them before or heard them a lot of times before. And so I think the mere exposure effect uh, could be considered kind of a cousin of the illusory truth effect. It's the illusory liking effect. <laughs> but as we were saying, yeah, it appears for some stimuli, including music, the effect doesn't last forever. You like a song a lot more after you've already been exposed to it once or twice, and you keep liking it more and more the more you hear it. But at some point, maybe around, you know, who knows, maybe 10 or 20 exposures or so, the pleasure plateaus, you stop liking it more. And after that, it's possible that you will like it less and less the more you hear it. And I think this very well could be the case, especially for songs that recur year after year at a yeah. certain timetable throughout the year. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can... The, that matches up well, I think, with uh, with our experience with a lot of holiday songs. Now, another criticism that often comes up is that uh, as one is bombarded with all this holiday music, you know, it may, of course, aggravate other holiday seasonal stresses that are going on already, stuff regarding, say, money, family, politics, or other factors. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, I've, I've heard it voiced that you know, part of the holiday stress is is sometimes having to shop, having to you know right. take care of the you know the, the, the checklist for the holidays. And holiday music is kind of like this this voice telling you that you're not done yet, reminding right. you of all the work you have to do. Uh -huh. And uh, and yeah, I can see where that can be a, an, an unwanted bombardment. Well, it may be exactly part. I mean, so we listen to holiday music around the time that we're trading gifts with people. People mm -hmm. listen to holiday music on Christmas Day when they're opening presents and stuff. So, I, I mean, I wonder if there's supposed to be a conditioned association between the music and the gifts. They play it in the store to get you thinking about the gifts. You might not have thought about gifts while you were in there otherwise. Yeah. That seems like a, a pretty clear thing that could be going on there. Uh, again, I, I mean, I'm wondering – 
if if these stores have access to research that we don't have access to, making the case really strongly that Christmas music, yes, absolutely does make people buy more. I'm, I'm not sure based on the publicly available research that the case is that strong, that mm. Christmas music makes people spend more. Maybe there's just a <laughs> – uh, maybe there's private research or maybe they've got secret, you know, Christmas music labs where they, they've dug up this research. <laughs> Christmas or, Skinner boxes. Yeah, yeah. or, you know, maybe maybe it's not even all that well-informed. Maybe the, all this mayhem is going on in our ears for nothing. Well, I mean, I, I some of the sources I was looking at, they, they did speak of it as being, you know, accepted fact that, mm-hmm. that the Christmas stimuli can enhance purchases. Now, one paper I was looking at, I'm sorry, I don't have the, the, the title on it offhand, but uh, it um, it was looking at what happens when you pair auditory Christmas stimuli with um, smells of Christmas. Yes, I was looking at some stuff like mm-hmm. that too, yeah. And I think they were finding that the smells on their own did, weren't as, as potent, weren't as commanding, which is interesting because, you know, our, our sense of smell is very primal. It, it mm-hmm. connects to, with our brain and our memories in a way that uh, other senses do not. Uh, and yet they, I believe they were finding that the Christmas smells on their own were not as pervasive as smells combined with sound. Well, I could certainly believe that. I mean, uh, I don't know. I'd say maybe I'm being overly skeptical about this. I, I just don't find myself fully convinced that the onslaught of Christmas music is justified by, by the the research. <laughs> well, I mean, certainly I think a lot of, uh, you know, coming back to that uh, the business article uh, we were talking about earlier, like a lot of people are just doing it because that's what you do, clearly. Right. Yeah. Um, some are, you know, less, you know, informed on, uh, on, on exactly how you should calibrate it. It's just, it's <laughs> Christmas time, you put up the Christmas window display, you put out the Santa, and you just play Christmas music nonstop. Uh-huh. And, and, and I, I think it seems reasonable that a, a more nuanced approach is really in order. Uh, and uh, but but I don't think we're going to see it uh, go away anytime soon. Okay, what is the Christmas song that is going to make you least likely to spend money in a store? Oh man, I mean there are there are so many. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, we're, the, the grandma got run over by a reindeer is is probably probably a big one that would prevent uh, me from. Uh, from from staying in the store, uh-huh. like that one. That one's kind of a walkout song for me. I will shop at your competitor if you <laughs> do Christmas balls one more time. Yeah, I, I don't think I've even heard Christmas balls, but this already sounds like a walkout uh, tune for me as well. Well, Robert, after we finish up in here, we're going to listen to Christmas balls. All right, uh, if we must. <laughs> All right. Uh, so obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody about this topic, your experience with holiday music, uh, your experience being subjected to holiday music. And I think it's especially nice because I know we have, uh, you know, we have a large, you know, U.S.-based listenership, but we have international listeners as well. And I feel like we could probably get some unique feedback uh, from those individuals. Uh, you know, what is it, what is it like? Uh, uh, yeah, what is the Christmas music bombardment like in your part of the world. Mm-hmm. And what are the, the equivalents in non-Christmas cultures? Yeah. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you will find them. You can also find us wherever you get podcasts. Just make sure you subscribe because that way you'll, you'll know that more episodes are going to come to you and there will be – there'll be at least one more Christmas episode. We have one in store <laughs> uh, that I, th- I think will, will delight you. Uh, but also some non-holiday stuff. We're going to adhere to the uh, the rules here of Christmas music in the store, uh, and we're not going to bombard you with just 100% holiday episodes. Gods be praised for that. Yes. Halloween is the only, um, the only holiday that we really uh, bombard you with. 
Uh, also check out Invention. That's our, our other uh, podcast. That one deals with human techno history. And we have we do have some holiday episodes there as well dealing with various toys, uh, the, the invention of various toys like uh, the yo-yo, the frisbee, the hula hoop. Where did these, these classic toys come from and why do they resonate with us so? Uh, also, uh, let's see, uh, uh, horror fiction-wise, the second oil age is all out and you can, uh, you can uh, mainline that entire run. And uh, I think that's it. Yeah. So, <laughs> I was trying to think of anything else I need to plug. No, I guess that's it. Um, just the merch to, pit? The merch pit. You know, the, the merch pit does still exist. If you want uh, some stuff to blow your mind, merchandise, shirts, and so forth, uh, maybe for your holiday shopping, then uh, you will find that. There's a tab for that at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Right. It's our T Public store if you yes. want to Google it. Yeah. Um, anyway, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio's how stuff works for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Thank you.